0: This is Les Newsome, and you are listening to the RUF Old Miss podcast for October 3rd, 2007. Revelation 6 through 7, let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's Word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's Word. It's Ivan Karamazov, the middle brother in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, who carried around a little notebook... Contained in the notebook were copies that he had made of every instance of innocent suffering that he had ever heard of or read about. The things that were in the notebook were terrible. Accidents, instances of torture, cruelty, agony, despair. He specialized, the book said, in the suffering of innocent children. And all of these anecdotes were collected in one place to serve, as it were, as an indictment. And the indictment was against God Himself. Because, in in other words, to look and to say to God with that notebook, because these things happen, you are not there. And if you are, you're unjust. Uh, Eugene Peterson says in one of his uh, books that he believes that this particular little notebook is probably an international bestseller, though unintentionally so. For some people, it is an intellectual impossibility to see evil around them and still believe in a God. If God is in control of all things and He's good, then why does He allow the evil that exists to persist? For other people, it's simply a personal improbability. If God is in control and good, then why does He not rescue me from this suffering that I'm going through right now? This is what theologians and philosophers refer to as the so-called problem of evil. But I want you to see tonight in the passage that we just read that the book of Revelation, and therefore John the Apostle, is deeply concerned with this question too. The Bible is not unused to the question of the problem that evil poses to God's people. Remember, John himself is writing to a people who are suffering horribly. And having read the glorious ecstasy of heaven in chapters 4 and 5, John anticipates that believers would be asking themselves the question, Why is it? If that is our destiny, chapters 4 and 5, why are we still suffering? Now listen, you have to frame the question and frame your understanding of chapters six and seven this way, or you're going to make some very classic mistakes that people make in trying to interpret this book. First of all, please understand the visions that you've just heard are not visions from a distant future that are still waiting to be experienced by the church. Did you catch that? I'm going to pause to let that sink in. And I'll even repeat it. What we just read, I do not believe, are coming in a distant future for the church. Nor are they, do I believe, secondly, descriptions of something that happened so far in the distant past that it doesn't have any real relevance to our situation. What I think John is describing, and you've got to get this in highly symbolic terms, is a situation that is ongoing in the life of the church in every single era of human history. Did you catch that? John is describing something that is always going to happen. In other words, these are seals that are being broken from a scroll. And last week we found out that that scroll is itself God's purposes in human history to enact justice and judgment throughout all of His creation. And so what we get from this lesson of the seals is a lesson on suffering, on what it means for us to go through things that break our hearts. Because the people of God for the last 200 years have been crippled under the weight of dreadful suffering. And John knows that his people are suffering. And so he offers to us in this passage, I would suggest to you two things. Number one, a lesson on suffering. And number two, a lesson on sealing. And you need both of them. First of all, a lesson on suffering. A quick note, if you'll take a look, please look at your passage at this point, and notice how it is that these seals, as John describes them, lay out in the text. The first four of the seals sort of hang together. They belong together, if you will, as will the first four of the trumpets, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments to come in chapters to come. They are linked together, of course, by the four living creatures who surround the throne who say the word, come, before every event. These riders, we find out, are almost exactly like the chariot horses that come out in prophecy in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And if you go back to Zechariah, you'll find that those four horsemen there go out to bring judgment on the world. And for that reason, there's no reason for us to think that these riders have come to do anything less. The fifth seal, I submit to you, will tell us about the rationale that that is given for these horses being released. That is so that God can judge His enemies. And then finally, the sixth seal will give us a sense of the ultimate judgment. In other words, the ultimate destiny that's in store for those enemies. Did you catch that? The four hang together, five is the rationale, six is the destiny. Remember that. And hopefully from that very structure you can see what John is doing here. He's giving them a symbolic interpretation of their own suffering. He's trying to give them a way to deal with it and to get through it by giving them these images. And so therefore we have to look and see what is it that these symbols mean? What are they? Well, the Lamb opens the seals, right? And at the very moment that He opens the first four seals, a rider goes forth. Who are they? First of all, there's a rider on a white horse, bringing what it says conquering and conquest. What John is saying is, is that throughout human history, the balance of power is going to constantly shift back and forth. The red horse, as it rides forward, brings calamity, slaughter, bloodshed. Christians have always lost their lives throughout the last 200 years of church history. The 20th century, quite honestly, being one of the most brutal. The black horse comes out to bring what I would call economic suffering. The living creature comes and explains that the prices for food have gotten exorbitantly high, while the rich continue to live in their happy luxury. Hence the command not to damage the oil and the wine, typically high dollar commodity prices. Finally, there is the pale or the sickly horse that comes and we're told is death itself. Death, the ultimate enemy of God. So do you see what's being said here? The Bible is saying that throughout history, God is so ordering, listen to this, is so ordering the events of history so as to vindicate His people and to judge those who oppose Him. That's what this passage is about. God is simply giving us a glimpse of saying, I am bringing about calamity. The reason why suffering comes... Is because I'm vindicating my people and I'm judging my enemies. And this has been going on for 2,000 years. And I think there's a couple of interesting points, therefore, in the text. Point number one notice, first of all, that the writer's powers to do, this thing, to, to do these things are given to them. Well, pray tell who is it that gives the writers these powers to do these awful things? Well, if you read the context, you'll see very clearly that it is the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb who grants powers to bring this kind of destruction. My friends, it is the one sitting on the throne who brings God's judgment. Now look, you've heard me say before that there is nothing easy about trying to claim that God Himself is responsible for human calamity. There ain't nothing easy about that at all. And if you think it's an easy question, you're not paying attention. And to be honest with you, there is no logical sort of airtight uh, uh, argument that I can offer to you to somehow help you make sense of how it is that God moves in human history through evil without himself being the author of it. I can't answer that question for you. But I will say this, I don't think you can live without it. Because if we do not have God's sovereignty, even over our suffering, then suddenly our suffering is for no reason. A number of years ago, my aunt, my mother's sister, called my mother to complain. And to be honest with you, she had a right to complain. You see, my cousin, my aunt's son had recently been, uh, or he and his wife had recently been trying to conceive. And through some of the conception efforts, they had actually uh, conceived triplets. And the the pregnancy simply did not go very well. And when the children were born, my cousin and his wife and the rest of the family went through a grueling couple of months where the children began to die, one after the other. Tiny little infants. And my aunt gets on the phone and she says to my mother, she goes, and she went through a brief, it was a brief time, but she went through a moment of a crisis of faith and she said, I just don't understand how I can be expected to believe in a God who would allow that kind of thing to happen. My mother, I thought, answered her very wisely because she looks and she said, and I don't have an answer for you either. I can't answer you the question, Why? except to say that I would rather believe that there was a God in heaven who allowed the suffering that I'm going through for a reason that He has not yet told me than to suddenly hear that there was no God at all and therefore their suffering was for no reason. Which is worse, a universe, a universe where you don't have all the information or a universe where it's just another random event. Secondly, the, the first point, of course, is this idea that these powers were given. But secondly, I want to suggest to you that these riders are still riding today. There's no reason for us to think that even in our own world, the riders are still riding. Take, for instance, the black horse. The black horse is, of course, economic disparity. Look, the idea that the United States is a meritocracy, do you know what I mean by that word? This idea, the sort of American idea, where you know what? If you come to America, everybody has an equal chance. Everybody has an equal chance to better themselves and to put your life together on your own terms. That idea that America is such a place has lately been called greatly into question, and I think with good reason. A recent article in The, in the Economist said, I gave a couple of statistics that I found fascinating. Listen to these. It says first of all that if you take the incomes of America of Americans from 1979 to the year 2000, the lower 20 percent of incomes in the U.S. grew by about 6.4 percent. The lower 20 percent had about a 6.4 increase in that sort of 20-21 year span. The top one 1 percent grew by 184 percent. Here's another one. The top 1% of people in 1979 made about 133 times what the bottom 20% made. In the year 2000, they made something like 189 189 times what the bottom 20% made. It's not getting any better for the poor. Thirdly, in 1979, the top CEOs made 39 times what their average workers made. In the year 2000, They make a 1,000 times what the average worker makes. Finally, let's listen to this one. The top 1% in the year 2000 earned 20% of all the income in the U.S. in the last two years. The top 1% in this country owns a third of our country. (laughs) Now look, you can take those statistics however you want to. I'm simply suggesting that what that shows is that the black rider has been riding forth... And there is great economic disparity. And the truth is, it's growing. There are still those who cannot afford to live in the way in which they do while the rich get richer. We are not the meritocracy that we thought that we were. And I want to suggest to you that it is the judgment of God. The riders riding forth. And we're living in the midst of it. The fifth seal then gets opened to show that God's people, the martyrs that have died for the faith, their blood has been spilt and they are crying out for justice. Now, I'll be honest with you. That little line that they cried out there saying, avenge our blood, O God, is very unsettling for for folks. But the truth is, it doesn't need necessarily to be. I want to suggest to you that there is nothing sinful, listen, there's nothing sinful or even necessarily unforgiving about a longing for God to make things right, to set the wrongs in the universe to the right. Let me see if I can illustrate this. I am always fascinated by the behavior of serial killers, serial mass killers, right? They go on their spree and at the very end, what do they do? They turn the gun on themselves. Why do they do that? I have a suspicion. And my suspicion is, is because they don't want to face justice. They don't want to face what they know is coming. But this is my question. How do they know they won't face justice? Have you ever thought about that gamble? In many ways, it's the same gamble of someone contemplating suicide. A person who is suicidal thinks, I just want to end the pain, so I'm going to take my life. And the question that we would offer that is, how do you know that that is a cessation of pain? For the person who doesn't know Christ, we're not sure at all that that's a cessation of pain. My friends, why is it that the gunman kills and turns the gun on himself? Because in his mind he says there is no justice. But how do you know that? Have you been on the other side of the grave and come back? It's an unbelievable gamble. But I want to suggest you that there's something written on the heart of every single human being. That God is going to make all wrongs right. In the end there will be justice. And everyone will have to face it. Finally, the sixth seal gives us a glimpse of the end of time. Now, I know I just said that these are not glimpses of future events, except for seal six. Seal six contains all kinds of Old Testament symbols of ultimate cataclysm. And the symbols are not near as important as the message, which is basically to say there's going to come a time where no more excuses can be made. And no more delusions entertained. And the passage ends with the ominous and yet rhetorical question. Who can stand on that day? And of course we think the answer is no one when we see that kind of judgment. Until that is that we get to chapter 7. And it brings me to the second point. The first thing is a perspective on our suffering. The second thing we have to see is a perspective on our ceiling. Look, you have got to feel the force of chapter 6, verse 17. And there really ought to be a vague, or perhaps even not so vague, sense of panic that comes into your heart when you begin to realize that every single one of your deeds will be judged. Jesus puts it by saying, Every idle word... Will be displayed before all. There's a sense of panic that comes across us. In other words, you almost have to look and say, Who can stand in that day? No one. None of us will make it in that day. But in chapter 7, we actually get a sight of those who will actually stand in that day. And you know who they are? They're the 144,000. Now, look, follow the text. Follow the text, not me. There are angels that are released there to the four winds. One angel calls out that the sixth seal should not be released. Notice what's happening. The angel's going back and saying, Hold back the sixth seal until the, quote, servants of our God, unquote, are, and here's the word, sealed. Now, we have two questions in order to understand this section of the passage. Number one, who are these 144,000? And then secondly, what in the world do they mean by sealing? First question, who are these people? Well, look, there's a whole lot of debate on this. But honestly, the more that I've looked at this, and again, I haven't done near as much study as others have. But to be quite honest with you, I'm convinced that the 144,000 are obviously who they are. And the reason why I'm using the word obvious, I'll come to in a second. But I believe, listen very carefully, because this is going to come up as we get through this book. I believe that the 144,000 are the totality of the entire people of God from the time before Christ and the time after. Did you catch that? The 144,000, I'm saying, are a symbolic way of talking about all of God's people from all time. Okay? Now, why do I think it's obvious that it's that? Let me give you a couple of textual clues. Notice, if you look at the list of the tribes, and some of you got bored and thought, is he really going to read every one of these? And I did read every one of those to make the point. That list, every single commentator says, is weird. Now, why is it weird? I looked at it and it just looked weird because it was oddly repetitious. Well, there's a bunch of other places in the Bible where the tribes of Israel are listed. You do realize that's who those people are in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 7. They're the 12 tribes of Israel, and yet it's a weird uh, listing. First of all, the tribe of Dan and Ephraim is missing from the list. In no other list of the tribes in the Bible are Dan and Ephraim missing. Why is it missing? Secondly, they include Joseph's name, which is not found in any other list. What gives? Most commentators agree that for that reason, this list is, how they say, highly stylized. My translation? (laughs) Weird. And because of that, I think John is telegraphing something. He is saying, I'm doing this... Uh, purposefully, so that you can realize that I'm speaking symbolically and not literally. And from that perspective, the symbol's not hard to figure. Look, y'all, 144,000 is 12 times 12. There's those numbers. Numbers that are oftentimes used to describe the people of God. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve apostles. Multiply them together, you get 144. What does it suggest? It suggests completeness. And then the verse, then uh, when the number 1,000 gets added into that and multiplied by it, you simply heighten the idea. In other words, John is saying that I was standing there and I heard, listen very carefully, he heard the number of the people. This is significant. And the number that he heard was 144,000. But do you notice what happens when he turns and looks in verse 9? Did you notice that? He turns and looks and he sees what? A number that nobody could possibly count. Did you catch that? He hears the number and it's symbolic, 144,000. He turns and sees and he sees what that 144,000 stands for and it's a number that nobody can number. If you believe that the 144,000 is a literal number to be taken for a literal number of people then why can't John figure out the number in verse 9 after he's already been told it in verse 4? You follow? I'm not trying to be ugly. I just think it's obvious. (laughs) 144,000 are a symbolic view of people. You know what this means? It's going to be a lot of people in heaven. (laughs) I think that's good news. I think that's wonderful news. All of God's people from history past and history future gathered in one glorious, brand new creation. Ah, hold on for that. We'll get to that at the end of the semester. But look, y'all, the reason why I'm sort of going on so much about this is because there are a lot of people in our day... Not the least of which is the Left Behind series and all of their popularity that believe that this 144,000 are actually talking about Jewish people. Many say that what we have there in chapters 4 and 5 depicts the exit of God's people from the earth, a great rapture as it's known. And these people are taken and what he's going to leave is a a specific number of Jewish people, 144,000, who will then carry on God's agenda as his covenant people. Now look, there are a lot of problems, I feel like, with that view that can, I think, be solved easily when you consult the New Testament writers. Because the New Testament writers everywhere are trying to say that the church, the people of God in the New Testament, are themselves Old Testament Israel. Don't believe me? How about Galatians 3.29 where Paul says, If you belong to Jesus, you are, drumroll please, Abraham's offspring. Well, that's an interesting way to talk about it. Galatians 6.13 says that the church is the Israel of God. Philippians 3.3 says that we are the circumcision who glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, these Old Testament figures are given, but they are applied to the people of God today. Look, all this is to say is this. (laughs) And if I wasn't in trouble before, I'm going to be in trouble now, but I'm going to say it. Jewish people... Do not have, I believe, any more covenantal significance before God. There, I said it. And they're offered the same gospel of grace just like we Gentiles are. They have the exact same offer of God's grace to them just like Gentiles do. But as an ethnic people, there's nothing special about them, at least in God's agenda. Because the New Testament church has become that and fulfilled it. Follow? Follow? Okay, second and lastly, and I'll finish with this. I've gone too long. What in the world does it mean to be sealed? I left the best for last, okay? What this means is that, um, what it means to be sealed is that if you are a person in this room tonight who, like it says in verse 14, has washed your robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, then you are a part of the 144,000. There it is. And you're sealed, it says. And that means that that there will be no harm that will come upon you when God comes to judge His enemies. Um, That's a good thing. (laughs) It's good news. Why? Well, because the reason is because the word sealing has actually already been used in the New Testament. Paul used the word back in Ephesians 1. He said, having believed, you were marked in Him with a, you guessed it, seal ...the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. A deposit guaranteeing, guaranteeing. Let's see if I can illustrate this one. When the Jews went to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body, they said they wanted His grave sealed. They wanted His grave sealed. And what they would do is they would take this huge stone and roll it in front of the door of the grave. And they would take two sort of globs of wax... And they would set one on the stone and one on the wall and connect the two with a rope. Therefore, if you happen to move the stone at all, you couldn't do it without breaking the seal. You see what that means? (laughs) Jesus is saying, and John is saying, that if you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, then the truth of the matter is, is that no spiritual harm can come to you. And the Holy Spirit is His seal showing that you're protected. You are safe as a kitten. You are secure forever. Nothing can snatch you from His hand, and you can face the four horsemen, and you can face whatever wrath they come to bring. You know what it means? It means that you can face whatever suffering you found yourself in tonight. The room is too big and too full for there not to be someone here whose heart is breaking. And what the Bible comes to say is, is that what this means is, is that your suffering can never be ultimate. See, that's a temptation, isn't it? We get waylaid by something. Or worse, we have the low sort of throb. The painful, indescribable throb of suffering that simply will not go away. And what God is saying is, is it's all temporary. And the truth of the matter is, that is the meaning of the song of the elder. Now, come on. When I read that thing, was there not just a little piece of you that got excited about that? I mean, come on. He will guide them to springs of living water. And there he will wipe every tear from every eye. Come on, y'all. Now not paying attention if you don't look at that and say... Even if you didn't believe that, you wish it was true. And God says, it's a guarantee. It is your absolute destiny that I have for all of those who are facing suffering. And the truth of the matter is, even somebody as hard and encrusted as Ivan Karamazov says the same thing. Listen. (laughs) Listen to him. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That for all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions, they will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass. That it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity of all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but even to justify what's happened. Look, you grab that right there, and you take it on the inside, and it will completely transform your view of suffering. Philip Yancey tells a story about World War II POWs who were encased in POW camps waiting for the Allies to save them. And the POWs had actually fashioned for themselves a very primitive radio to pick up signals from the outside. One day, the word came over the the radio that the Allies had won and they were coming in to free everyone. But the Germans had not yet heard about it. The next morning, the Allied uh, prisoners got up to got up out of their beds and went and did the same old work detail that the Germans had made them do before. But you know what? They had a little bit of a lighter step, did they not? Because they knew that in the end, salvation was coming. Look, is there anything like that in your soul? I don't know where you stand tonight. I I don't know where you look at or how you look at the kind of things that Christianity presents to you week in and week out in RUF. I defy you to find any more shiny gold than that. That in the God there is a way to see through whatever rider comes through your life. And there's comfort for you here. And that is an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would fill our hearts with the song of the elder that we would look and that we would say inside of our souls that salvation and glory and honor belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. And that there comes a day when there will be no more tears, every tear wiped away, and God's people completely preserved from the judgment and the wrath that is sweeping across us. You have made us to be islands in the stream. And yet we are not islands alone. You have given us Your Holy Spirit and You have given us each other. And Lord Jesus, we need both of those now. Some of us are suffering. Some of us are heartbroken. Some of us don't even know what's wrong with us. It just hurts. And we're asking for You to come and be present tonight by Your Spirit. And seal your people. That we might be among that great number one day that John turned and saw. A vast number of people that no one could count. Singing praises to our God. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would do just such a thing in our midst tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.